This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Be sure to check out and subscribe to my other podcast, Thinking and Doing, where I examine logical fallacy, cognitive bias, stoic teachings, and tips on being better at life. Uh, Before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around. To schedule, go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, man? I'm well. How are you? Good, thanks. Microphone here. All right. Early in the morning for you. Thanks for getting up. <laughs> yeah, I've been up for about an hour now. Um, yeah, it's 8 o'clock here. Where, where are you at? Montreal, East Coast. Montreal. Okay. Montreal, I've never been Ca- to Canada. The, the, the French part of Canada there. Yeah. So you speak French? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I hear it's um, pretty different than the the French you hear in France. Is that true? Absolutely. So I'm a I'm what you call an anglophone. So we have a small community of English speaking people who grew up in English households in Quebec. We're called anglophones, and so I had to learn French as like a second language here because you know you gotta you gotta work and operate. Um, and when we when I travel to France with my colleagues, the people in France understand me better, even though my French is weaker, because I've learned like the proper you know the classical grammatical ways to say things as yeah. opposed to my colleagues here that do the, it's a real bastardized form of French really. So it's a, it's a different dialect a little bit. I mean, look, Americans and, and English people will understand each other, but the lexicon is completely different. Right. And, and the way you spell words is different. And uh, even the order of, of the words sometimes in a sentence is different. So it's, it's kind of like that just a little bit more uh, to the side of the spectrum. Yeah. That's interesting. Doesn't um, I don't, I don't know. If I th- I think I think there's something like this that exists both in France as well as in Canada, but isn't there some kind of a language commission that tells you what is and is not correct French? And there's no like I guess the contrast would be the Oxford English Dictionary doesn't tell you what English is, and it constantly adds new words that come out. You know that just as English evolves, whereas the French counterpart of that kind of resists that sort of thing. Is that true? Well, I don't know about France. I wouldn't be able to speak to that. But in Quebec, we have a commission not on preserving the French language from France, but on preserving the French culture here. So there's a, it's it's like a whole ongoing joke here. Uh, there's, I forget their name. Um, it's Law 101. And they control kind of how you can use language. I'll give you an example. If you go to a restaurant and on the menu, the French items are not, in bigger font and bolded and before the English words, like they'll get a fine. 
Like there's ridiculous stories of pet stores getting fines because the parrot only said English words, you know, that was on play. Stuff like that. <laughs> the the parrots <laughs> only said English words so they get fined. Yeah, yeah. That, you can look wow. it up. These are like ridiculous things. Like uh, a restaurant got fined because they had spaghetti on the menu and it's a, it's a it's an English word and they're like, "Well, what are we supposed Isn't to Isn't that write? an Italian like, word? Spaghetti? <laughs> Isn't that Italian? I don't know. Wow. Yeah. How, how would you say spaghetti in in French? In French, I don't know, but in Quebec you'd say spaghetti. Spaghetti. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Like at work when we get emails, the first half is always French, always, and then the second half is the English one. But the French part, again, the font has to be larger and and bolded or darker. Like the English is almost like a footnote, and that's law in Quebec. So this is what the commission does here. Wait, wait, wait. Totally. Okay, so is this only like professional emails, or is this like you're emailing your mom? You've got to do at least you've got to do French. Maybe you don't have to do both, but if you do both, French French has to be on top, and it has to be bigger. No, so it's it's obviously a personal life is a personal life. This is only for, you know, at work and businesses or whatever, okay. that kind of stuff. Signs outside of, uh, like, if, if it's a business, any signs you have, anything you have always has to be French, French, French with, like, English and footnote on the bottom. And this is, the, there's, like, a whole police force behind this to push the French language. And they say they're trying to protect the French culture. But it almost seems like a... Um, Apartheid is too strong of a word, but like they're really, I see generation over generation, the English population is getting smaller and smaller. Like another example is you're not allowed to send your kids to English school here unless both parents want English school. So through every generation, there's less and less kids going to English school. And every year there's more and more English schools being appropriated to the French school board. It's like a whole gentrification thing happening. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of bizarre. No offense. Um, <laughs> hey, systemic racism is everywhere, man. Yeah, yeah, that's that's certainly true. Um, and and this these language codes or whatever, this is just in uh, Montreal. No, no, this is Quebec. And in fact, or, or, Montreal is where there's the biggest problems because the anglophones were only in Montreal. There, there's no anglophones elsewhere in Quebec. Everywhere else, it's fine. It's only here that there's like a conflict. Okay. Wow. Yeah. But there's a, you know, not to oversimplify, there's a whole historical thing behind this. Like if we go back just 50 years, which is not that long ago, right. you know, at the forum, uh, you know, the forum, I don't know if you know the forum, if you know hockey, uh, the forum was like the mecca of hockey, you okay. know, and, and it's like, the, it was the arena. And literally they had like fences separating the English from the French because the English were the business owners and then the French were the workers. And there was like a whole it, it, it gets really messy. And, and and like, I understand a lot of where people come from today, but you know, the pendulum has kind of swung too far to the other side now. So uh, personally, I, I, it's, you know, it's fun to look at this from a third party perspective and just laugh. Um, but it, it's, it's, we see this everywhere. And, and like I said, systemic racism is everywhere, right? Systemic yeah. issues are everywhere. This is just like a microcosm using language as, as a divider. Well, the the other thing I hear about language coming out of Canada is like the uh, the the transgender pronouns thing. Is that something that you've ever run into? Where I guess I don't know if this is Canadian wide or if it's a provincial thing, but um, this is kind of the whole Jordan Peterson thing when he first sort of got his fame here in the U.S. was his refusal to be forced to use somebody's preferred pronouns that could be anything they made up, you know. Mm -hmm. um 
anyway, so that's so now I've got like these two weird language things coming out of Canada, and, and I'm just going to stereotype all of Canada now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's not that's not something we've had to deal with here. I think that's more like you said, something Jordan Peterson put on a put on a stake to kind of stake his claim to to fame, his 15 minutes of fame. Well, it's been longer than that. <laughs> he's he's uh, um, he's interesting. Um, I have some issues with him, but you know he's not he's not bad overall. I guess what 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 I understand about him. But uh, anyway, um, so so you grew up you grew up there. You've always lived there. Born and raised. Yeah, I did travel extensively for a few years. Um, and and after my travel, I was like, you know what? This is home. This is where I want to live because. We're joking about like the language thing, but generally speaking, out of everywhere I've been, and I've been to just under 300 cities, it's the most culturally diverse and accepting environment I've ever seen. Montreal, I'm talking specifically about Montreal here. It's just a mishmash of cultures. And yes, there's little conflicts here and there, but it's, it's, it's really, it's a beautiful city. Uh, not just, not just like, you know, they say it's the Paris of uh, North America, which is a total overstatement. Or, you know, I've been to Paris too, it's like this, <clears throat> excuse me. But Montreal is really, um, how can I say, it's it's lively, but not like um, not like a New York where it's like, you know, you, it's, it's always, you're constantly like being bombarded with uh, uh, stimulus. Uh, it's, you can go to any type of, I don't know, are you, are you a foodie? Like you can literally go to any type of restaurant you want within a 10 minute drive, like uh, Ethiopian, Afghani, like, you know, Obviously, there's the generic Korean French. Stupid example, but as a foodie, like me and my wife appreciate this. Uh, when we look at our friends, you know, we look at like we were looking at last year's Christmas party, actually, uh, reminiscing over you know times when we used to be able to hug people and um, the diversity in our in our friend group just organically because that's what we have around us. It's it's wonderful. It's fantastic, and I haven't seen this anywhere else. You know, you know yeah, you have ethnic groups here and there in different places, but I don't know. Montreal's really unique that way. So. I love it here. It sounds sounds a little. I mean, you kind of contrast it with New York, which is people are on top of each other. But when <laughs> I haven't been to New York, but I have been to Chicago several times, and you go downtown Chicago, and it's it's not anything like I see in the movies and shows with regards to New York. It's very you can breathe. There's there's a lot more breathing room. It's a lot seems a lot cleaner, um, and it's it's still kind of this this really big city. Um, so maybe, maybe that's the closest thing. Um, okay. Well, um, cool. <laughs> yeah. If, anyways, we go, went off topic there. So no, 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 that's, Lots. that's, that's great. I like to, I like to, um, you know, just kind of start with, with some small talk like that. So what, um, I'm just curious. So I, I've just recently discovered, discovered you, and and your books and I haven't even purchased them yet, but they are on my my wish list. Um, when did you start publishing those? It looks like Volume Three just came out recently. My my first book published three years ago. I've been publishing them one year apart uh, around October November. So yeah, the last one came out just at the end of October. And um, it, my first one, I wrote it as it was supposed to be a one off, and that's why if you look at my book titles, which I haven't changed, my first one is just your user's manual. And then the next ones are volume two and volume three. I refuse to put volume one on the original because I want people to know it was supposed to be a one-off. I just wrote it like, hey, let me write a book, you know? Um, it was mainly because I, I, I started on this journey, and I'm sure we'll get into that later on, but I started on this journey of self-rediscovery, self-re-education, rather, not rediscovery. 
And um, my life just completely changed. So my friends that know me from childhood, you know, they referred to Anderson from the before times and Anderson on the after times. Like I went through a real big change. And I say this in my podcast, in my introduction, where uh, stoicism really did save my life. It really did save my life. That's just, that's not just a, hey, it's been awesome. Like, no, it changed everything. And um, as I changed and, and matured in my approach to life and became kind of this more mindful and practical and relaxed tranquil guy people around me including my wife and my friends would you know come and ask kind of not advice but just you know uh, shoot the shit brainstorm like hey how would you handle this like how did you get through this and over time I, re- I recognize I realized that these little bits and pieces of wisdom I'm dropping for people it is it, kind of like a repetitive theme maybe like a dozen things that we talk about um, and that's stoicism right stoicism is not rocket science it's just very basic right. stuff and I saw that it was really helping other people as well. So I said, let me write a book. It'll be like, you know, hey, I wrote a book and maybe it'll help. If it helps one person, it'll totally be worth it, right? So that, that, that was the idea. And then it just um, blew up. It, it blew my mind and, and, and the, you know, it sold 3,000 copies in the first year. And I'm, I'm an independent author. There's no advertisement behind this. It's all word of mouth. It's and so when I saw that, I'm like, okay, there's an appetite for this. Let me just, you know, put some articles out there. And that's when I started doing the thing on Reddit, which is, I believe, where you ran into my stuff. Um, so I post, you know, weekly exercises on Reddit. And then, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when I realized that there's a real appetite for this, I said, let me do a more comprehensive approach to stoicism. Because the first book was more like a high level, 30,000 foot view of what it is and how it can help you. And so the second and third books are a little bit more um, uh, point to like a little bit more um, specific. The second one is about controlling your own thoughts. And the third one is about controlling your world to find tranquility and happiness. And uh, here we are. I also started a podcast series two years ago, uh, again, under the same banner of Stoicism for a Better Life. And that too blew up. You know, I'm trending in the top 20% of podcasts on Spotify. Um, no advertisement behind it again, just kind of drop that word of mouth. And so uh, the more I realized people need this way I did and that it's helping people the way it helped me, um, I've kind of gone on this crusade because I feel like it's my duty to share this. And I try, and this is why all my content is free. Uh, there's no ad in my stuff. So I, I just want people to get the same benefit as I did. And that's what's brought me here uh, four years later. Wow. Do you, um, do you want to talk about, cause you said it saved your life. And I'm kind of curious about that story. Um, not having read your first book yet. Could you tell me about that? Sure. Um, so without getting into too many details, uh, my story is if we go back 10 years, I was the, the best way to put it is I was like a capitalist wet dream. Okay. I crashed in school, got, I got my CPA, got a few more certifications just for good measure. So I had, you know, 12 letters after my name on the business card. I uh, got a got an exec level position. I had six figure salary, house, kids, wife, two dogs to boot. You know, check, check, check. Everything society told me I should have to be happy, and uh, I wasn't happy. Okay? I was still hollow inside um, on the hedonic treadmill. Um, and and by some sheer stroke of luck, I, I recognize this. Okay, most people just kind of live like this and go on through their lives until. You've got one foot in the grave and then you realize, oh, I've been spending my life the wrong way uh, when it's too late. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, I, if I go back to the before times, like I'd come home after a long day's work and just get plastered 
but you know, I wasn't self-medicating. I wasn't, I wasn't a drunk. I was drinking expensive scotch. I was classy. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it, I was living that kind of life, like going from one meal to the next one uh, vacation to the next, like what's the next gadget that I'm going to get? Like, uh, let me buy something to find happiness, but it wasn't working. So when I realized this, I said, let me, let me, let me look for other answers. Capitalism was not the answer, right? I'm, I'm on top of the pyramid. It's not helping. And I looked at religion. They didn't work for me because I'm a very agnostic person. I can't take things on faith. I need a logical reasoning behind it. And this is when I stumbled upon philosophy. Now, philosophy, we all know this as, you know, what do we think of when we hear philosophy today? We think of a guy in a tweed jacket with leather, you know, elbows, uh, uh, glasses and a pipe maybe, and, and talking about... Uh, uh, semantics with with other philosophers in the academic scene, right? This is what we think of. In fact, this is only the modern term of philosophy. In the past, what it meant was it was a guide for life. Okay, before Christianity really took over, it was a guide for people on how to live a purposeful life. And and Stoicism is one of these Hellenic philosophies from you know, two and a half uh, thousand years ago uh, that survived the past time. Uh, and it's one of the philosophies that I, I, I studied. And, and if you read my books, I do say I'm not a Stoic. I'm a Stoic practitioner. And, and Stoicism does predominantly dominate my philosophy. Uh, but I, I look at, you know, uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, the Buddha Dharma. I look at a lot of Western philosophy, you know, um, um, uh, a big fan of René Descartes, of course. I, and, and so the way I live my life now is based on the amalgamation of the these philosophies that I read over the past years. And, and this is why I was saying I, I went through a self-re-education because I learned that what I've been taught in school, what I've been taught by society, what I've been taught by my parents, they were not uh, uh, made to give me a purposeful and happy life. They were made to make me be a good member of the capitalist, materialistic consumer society that we live in today. And uh, 10 years later, I can tell you, I, 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 you know, I sleep like a baby every night. I, my relationship with my wife and kids is better than it's ever been. Um, you know, every night I go to bed feeling like, hey, if I don't wake up tomorrow, that's cool. I lived a good day today. Um, I've really found this tranquility that I never thought possible. And now I'm just trying to help others find the same thing. Wow. Um, yeah. I, uh, you talk about sort of... Um you know, going through schooling and certifications and getting all the, you know, the acronyms after your name to to make your business card look really impressive and just really grinding away in the capitalist machine, if you will. And what I think about is, and, you know, relative to all the other possible economic systems, I'm definitely a capitalist. I think it's relatively better. But I'm also of the mind that the agricultural revolution that happened in humanity 6,000 years ago was a mistake. <laughs> I think ever since then, humanity has suffered through, you know, different eras and epics, right? We left what I see as the physical and mental health maximizing hunter-gatherer area to, you know, <laughs> downhill from there. Right. And so getting getting sort of pulling yourself away from that and finding your own peace again, mm -hmm. um, that's that's something that now I don't I don't want to judge what other people need. But it seems to me like 
most people could really benefit from thinking that way and, and doing what they can to change their lives to, to get back to that, um, which I'm sure you agree with. It sounds like you agree with. So absolutely. Let, let, let me just be clear. So I, I and, and I go on as guests on, on some podcasts to talk about capitalism and socialism and libertarianism and all this because I'm also a big history buff. But let me be clear, as much as I disagree with a lot of the, the, the junk that comes out of capitalism, I'm not anti-capitalist. Capitalism is a fantastic driver for innovation. And if we look at our species from the perspective of transcendence, the fastest way to get there is through capitalism. Um, so, you know, I'm not on a crusade to say, yeah, let's not be you know, capitalist. No, it's not that either. You know, yeah. I'm kind of in the middle of the Venn diagram that's capitalist, socialist, and libertarian. I, I, I believe in all three. And then and, and if we're going to talk socioeconomics, you know, uh, it would be irresponsible for anyone to say one is right and all the other ones are wrong, right? They all have their benefits. As far as uh, the philosophy for life is concerned, though, you bring up the perfect, you bring up a great point. And I talk a lot about this in my second book, The Agricultural Revolution. I talk a lot about actually the cognitive revolutions that, that happened 75,000 years ago, which I believe is the most impactful to, to our species and where we are today and our mental health issues. Um, but you bring up a great point, the physical versus the mental health. And we spend so much time tending to our physical necessities, right? Which is, which is what the universe, the physical universe absolutely demands from us, which is eat, uh, drink water and rest to uh, help repair the body, right? That's it. It's those three things, um, that the, the physical universe needs from us, but there is a, a spiritual side to us. And, and when I say spiritual, I don't want people to think, you know, halos and harps and wings and all this stuff. Um, it's the something more within us, which I'll touch upon in a second here. But it's that extra bit that's inside of us. It's that part that has necessities as well that we ignore. And that's the part that philosophy tends to. These, what I call spiritual necessities that one has to identify for themselves and, and work towards to find purpose in life. It's not to quit being, you know, like I haven't quit my job. I'm still an executive at my, at my, at my firm. Um, uh, but I approach work differently now, right? It's not that I've, I've sold everything and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got a bindle and I live in a box cart now, you know, yeah. spewing my philosophy around. It's that I approach life differently. And, and that's what speaks to me about stoicism, right? Unlike, unlike a, a cynic philosophy where you have to give up your material possessions, stoicism says, well, okay, we do live in a fake society, in, in, in a superfluous society, but we don't have to walk away from it to do good. We can do good within the society where we live, right? It's, but, but I'm digressing a little bit. Um, let me just backtrack and talk about the spirit, inside, the, 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 the extra bit that we have. Because as soon as you hear words like spirit and soul, you know, some people get irked. And, and as an agnostic, as an as a anti-theist, let me clarify this for some of your listeners, in my first book, I have this mental exercise called The Ship of Theseus. And, and for the benefit of your listeners, if you'll indulge me here, um, Theseus was the um, ancient uh, uh, Greek uh, badass. He's the mythic founder of Athens, okay? And he fought the Titans with this awesome battleship he had, right? The Ship of Theseus. And uh, after Theseus finds the city and dies, the uh, Athenians decide, okay, you know what? Let's maintain uh, the Ship of Theseus. Uh, so that posterity can see this on battleship that was used in, in fighting the Titans and finding our city. Great. So the ship is there floating in the harbor, right? And one day, uh, one of the wooden beams rots. Okay. And, and so the, the Athenians say, okay, let's replace this beam. 
uh, because we're trying to maintain it for posterity. They remove this ROM beam and they put a new one in its place in the exact same shape, in the exact same place. Now, is this still the ship of Theseus, even though one beam has been replaced, right? Most people would say, yeah, sure. Uh, so then you fast forward through time and then a few more beams get replaced, uh, maybe a few ropes get replaced. And I ask the question, is this still the ship of Theseus? You know, most people would say, yeah, sure. It's just being maintained, right? Uh, so you fast forward even further in time and you say, okay, now the whole ship's been replaced piece by piece, but one piece at a time, right? Every piece went exactly where it was in the exact same shape that it was in just to maintain the ship. So is this still the ship of Theseus? Although none of the original parts are there. This becomes a little tricky, right? You further complicate things by asking the question, okay, so imagine this whole time somebody was collecting all the old rotten pieces of wood and on land rebuilt the original ship of Theseus, right? So now the question is, do you have two ships of Theseus or do you have none or which one is it, right? There's no straight answer to this. But the point of this mental exercise is to drive home the point that what we assign value to something has nothing to do with the physical properties. Okay. Now, if we apply this to ourselves, um, you look in the mirror or any of us look in the mirror when we're young kids and we see ourselves, you say, this is me. Then you look in the mirror 10 years later, you look completely different, right? But you look in the mirror and you still self-identify as me, right? Uh, if you were to have a tragic accident and you lose your arms, let's say, in a car accident, would you cease to be yourself? Or do you look in the mirror and still see yourself? You still see yourself, right? So the point is, when you look in the mirror and you see yourself, it is completely independent from the physical body. The physical body has nothing to do with who you self-identify as. You self-identify with that something more inside. And that is what we mean when we say spirit or soul or your consciousness or self-awareness, whatever you want to call it. And that's the bit that uh, we're trying to cater to. And, and that's the bit that has this emptiness, this necessity inside that we don't address. We only address our physical needs. And uh, philosophy, stoicism specifically, uh, can really help fill the spiritual side of things. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Um, you know, we we actually, and, and I'm sure you know this, but we are we are a lot a lot like the ship of Theseus in that, I mean, just on the atomic level, our cells die and are recreated throughout our entire body. I think it's uh, different cells have a different lifespan. And I think it's like, if you average them all together, it's like seven years. So you could say every seven years, I'm a new ship of Theseus, right? I'm not, I'm not molecularly, I'm not the same, but obviously who we are, our memories, um, our, you know, our wisdom, our knowledge, our, our personality, there is a core to all of that, that carries through every regeneration and we change, right? People change, right? You, you've obviously changed as you've described. Um, I've changed in, in different ways, not, you know, not only about what political economic systems we like, but who we are, how we relate to other people. About 10 years ago, I had a major change with how I parent my kids. You know, I was violent and authoritarian and I did a 180 on that. And that was helpful. That was before I discovered stoicism. Um, and, and I am, I am curious to ask you about that actually, but, um, yeah, no, I like that. I like that we can say we have a spirit, we have a soul, this is what it is, and we don't need to confuse that with any particular religion's, you know, dogmatic view views on these things. So exactly. I like that. Exactly. And I make the joke in my second book when I talk about this, I say, look, 
But something more is undeniable. When you do the mental exercise of the ship of Theseus, the something more inside is undeniable. Whatever you want to call it, you know, let's call it tomato. Let's call it a tomato. And so, you know, spirituality, we can refer to it as tomatoism, right? Spirituality is not religion. Spirituality is not uh, crystals and whatever. Spirituality just means tending to that something more beyond the physical that clearly exists. Yeah. So, so let me ask you about this. You mentioned you are a father of three. I'm a father of three. How has stoicism, if it has, how has it helped you parent? I'm just curious what, what the stoic insight there is that you bring to your role as a father. Uh, I'm laughing because you say, if it has, I'm like, yeah, just ask my wife. Definitely it, has, it has, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, know that, um, I don't know that you've thought about it um, explicitly or if it's just sort of been what's happened because of this other change in your life. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, good question. Whether I did it, whether it was organic or consciously, I don't know. I, I guess it's a little bit of both because organically my behavior pattern has changed. Actually, uh, just this morning, I was writing some articles, weekly exercises, and, and the one I was writing about is how through making good virtuous decisions using a rational mind, we slowly reprogram the autopilot. That's part of the, you know, uh, the, the body's primitive brain. Uh, now, we don't do the right thing in the moment to reprogram the autopilot, but it's just a happy side effect and coincidence. And this is why over time we become more and more virtuous, even when we're not conscious about it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Organically, I've changed in my approach in that I'm a lot more patient. I'm not quick to anger anymore. Uh, these will be more organic. But uh, I have also made some conscious decisions on how to address certain topics and issues. Uh, example, you know, my, my older son, now he's, you know, turning 14, those years, you know, high school. So I'm like, okay, I got to have conversations about sex and drugs and this and that. And he's getting in trouble in school sometimes. And I do get, you know, emails from the principal here and there. And, you know, how do I deal with these? And the old would have been right away, like, that's it. No more Xbox. Nah, nah, nah. You know, until you change your ways, I'm going to keep punishing you. It would have been automatic negative reinforcement not because I'm a bad guy, not because negative reinforcement doesn't work, but because it's, it's the only thing I knew. That's how I grew up. Right. Yeah. Um, now I'm consciously approaching it more with a, I'm not sure I could even call it a positive reinforcement approach, but more of a logical, rational approach. I put myself in his shoes and think, what am I trying to do here? Am I trying to make him do the right thing through fear or reward? Or am I trying to teach him to be a good person? And, and it's option number three. I'm trying to teach him to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And this is a phrase I repeat often enough with the kids. Why do we do the right thing? Not to get praise, not to avoid punishment, but because it's the right thing to do. So, I, you know, uh, that would be a very conscious approach to how I parent. Um, I don't give positive reinforcement. I don't give gifts to them for doing the good thing. And I don't punish them for doing the wrong thing. Instead, I do the hard thing for a parent, which is, Every time, I, even if it might be the you know, 37th time he's doing the same mistake, I take the time to sit down and talk to him and explain why it was wrong. And I make sure he understands the logic of why it was wrong and why he should act the other way. So this would be one very pertinent example of how I approach uh, my parenting differently. It's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting to have to have the same conversation, you know, oh, yeah. uh, 20, 30, 50 times. But if I take a step back, it's the only way to approach it. It is the right thing to do. And if I don't do it, well, that's on me. 
if I'm lazy and I just want to yell at him and punish him and try and make him do the right thing through fear right now, that's on me. That's my shortcoming. And I know in the back of my mind that when I don't have that fear mongering over him anymore and I don't have that punishment hanging over his head, is he going to do the right thing? Or is he going to, is he going to revolt? Is he going to rebel? Like who knows? Yeah. So has, has your, um, exploration and study and application of stoicism, has that sort of been the only thing or have you had other, um, parenting influences? I'm just curious. I've familiar with a number of books that sort of got me to, to really that same kind of place. And then it was later that I just discovered stoicism and thought, well, there's a lot of compatibility here. I'm just curious if that's, if you were kind of the opposite in that regard. Uh, I'll be honest. I, I, I can't, I can't take credit for anything. The only thing I, when I started my re-education, when I realized philosophy was the answer to everything, I literally made philosophy the answer for everything. So no, I haven't read any other parenting. I'm sure there's some great material out there, but I just approach life in a, in a very specific uh, way. Again, I'm very agnostic. So I have, can I say like, I've made this uh, if then therefore approach to life of like, you know, key rules to follow based on all the philosophies I read, not just stoicism, and also based on uh, history. I read a, you know, I mentioned I'm a history buff. Uh, there's three things I read only philosophy, uh, which includes some fiction. You know, if we talk about like a Leo Tolstoy or, or Fyodor uh, uh, Dostoevsky, these are philosophical uh, uh, fiction stories, right? So I read a lot of philosophy, a lot of uh, socioeconomics, because I want to understand our world and how we, it came to be, and uh, uh, history. Again, I want to understand why people in the past made uh, the decisions they made. You know, we, it's easy to look back and say, well, that was clearly such a blatantly wrong decision. But I know they didn't, you know, at that time, whoever made that choice thought they were making the right choice. I want to understand why, because I can learn from that. So I only read, you know, history, philosophy, and socioeconomic stuff. And, and that's what guides me in my approach to life in uh, everything, you know, parenting, um, my diet, let's say, uh, my approach to how I do my job, uh, uh, my approach to how I plan my days, like uh, everything is guided by by the same principle. Yeah, that's fantastic. I've always, whenever whenever I hear the word philosophy, I just immediately translate it into its roots, which is love of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And if if we love wisdom, and we want to help we want to we want to learn wisdom and we want to help other people like our children learn wisdom learn the the wise course of action in any given situation which i think is our you know is our job as parents to to help them see that then it doesn't make sense that when our kid does something that we're labeling bad behavior which in my opinion there's no such thing as bad behavior there's just behavior incompatible with my preferences Right from his perspective, it wasn't bad behavior. It was he. I, I think everybody, with their level of knowledge and with the tools available to them, they're just trying to meet their needs. Right, what what, what they believe are their needs, and they just make mistakes. Um, and kids, you know, I, I don't. I I'm very careful not to um, assign malice or anything like that in the things that they do even if they are getting angry at a sibling or something and they, you know, maybe they are feeling malice. Um, it, it is more important to say, what, what were you trying to accomplish? And let's, you know, let me draw on my wisdom as a more experienced fellow human being and see if we can't help you understand what the, the, the wiser course of action, what the better way to do what you were trying to accomplish is. 
And that's, you know, that's, that's most of parenting right there. If we can, if we can get rid of these autopilot based ideas of they did something bad, I need to scream at them. Now, when my, when my first kid, he's 15 now and he's, he's starting to learn to drive and stuff and that's fun. Um, so I, I think we're kind of in the same, same ballpark there. Um, when he started like potty training and stuff and he would have accidents, I, I allowed that to be a trigger, a stress, a stress trigger for me. And I would, you know, for whatever reason, based on my own upbringing and I would, you know, explode. Right. And I can't, I can't lie and say exploding didn't feel good in the moment. Exploding and just releasing that can feel really good. And then after you feel like, you feel like crap because of who you just exploded on. (laughs) Um, so there was that, there was that whole battle inside me that was happening. And then I discovered some stuff and I was able to, to, to change. I was able to get new tools for my parenting toolbox that didn't include any of that stuff. Um, anyway, so, so yeah. And, and, and it's, and people, people do this, right? People discover the wiser course of action in, in all sorts of things. And they might not realize that they're doing philosophy, but they are. And, uh, not quite sure where I was going with any of that. I kind of oh, jumped it's a the good track point. there at some point. <laughs> anyway. But it's a good point. It's something I hear often enough. So I do a lot of these. Um, first of all, I do uh, mentorship with some of my readers and followers, you know, which basically means I agree to chat with them, you know, once every two weeks for half an hour just to shoot the shit or, or, or help them figure stuff out. Uh, I do a lot of... Uh, uh, I do a lot of interviews, but I do them usually in waves. Like um, right now I'm working on season three of the podcast series. So I'm not doing any. This was just because it was a one-off because of your host on Reddit. Actually, I was like, hey, I'm on vacation. So might as well. Let's do it, man. Um, But like uh, uh, two months ago, I I did like maybe 20 of them uh, after I finished the last book before I started season three of the podcast. Uh, So every time I have these interviews, every time I talk with uh, new new, uh, uh, mentees, it's a very common thing I hear that people say, hey, man, I had no idea I was a stoic. I've been doing a lot of these things for many years. It's pretty cool. It's a very common response. And my answer to that is it's because, and this is not just unique to stoicism. It's, you know, most philosophies and religions all just have the same thing at their core. They want to give people a way to live a good life and avoid suffering. Right. And to feel some type of purpose. So there is a huge overlap between all philosophies and all religions in that sense, uh, including the, the, the philosophy we create for ourselves internally. Right. Even before you you start reading some doctrines or whatever. And so it's very normal to hear people say, yeah, I've been doing these things that, uh, you know, it's that's very stoic or very uh, Epicurean or very whatever, um, because we just want to be good at our core. You know, to your point, there's no such thing as a bad person. No one wakes up in the morning, stands in front of the mirror, twirling their mustache like an evil villain going, okay, how can I make the world a worse place today? You know, everybody just wants to do good. We just have different definitions of what good is. And, you know, it's not up to me to say who's got the right definition. I go by what I think the best definition today, knowing full well, the definition is going to change tomorrow because I just keep uh, keep learning and keep changing that definition. Um, so, so to get back to your point, yeah, it, you know, we, it's, it's very common to see stoic practices in your, in your already routine, your regular routine or way of thinking, because we're all 
good people. This reminds me of, a, if, I, if I can digress here, uh, um, the Stoic Drowning Man. We have an analogy in our school called the Stoic Drowning Man, which is, um, you know, if I, if I go back to our granddaddy, Socrates, uh, he said that humanity, including ourselves, is in a state, in a, is in a decrepit state, but against our own will. And Stoicism picked up on this. Uh, and, and the reason behind this is as virtuous or, or as much capacity for virtue as our uh, consciousness has, our rational mind, that's something more within us. We do exist inside these very flawed and fable bodies. This biosuit that is our vessel is very flawed. And so our starting point is a decrepit state but we have this capacity for goodness, right? We don't say we are good. We have this capacity. And so the, the Stoic Drowning Man is a, a visual analogy for this because we, we love visual analogies. Uh, and so you imagine our lives as this uh, murky water. We're all drowning in this murky water that is our decrepitness, okay? And uh, our goal is to try and swim towards the surface where there's fresh air. And if you can get to the surface where there's fresh air, then you're a sage and you're breathing fresh air all the time right? Sagehood, however, is impossible. We know for a fact that we can never be 100% virtuous as long as we exist in these foul bodies, right? Uh, but we have to aim towards it. So there's a lot of things happening in this analogy, but the point I'm trying to point out here is that uh, we are all in a decrepit state. Some might be floating higher than others. Some might be swimming upwards. Some might be swimming downwards, but we're all bad in a way, and we all have the capacity for good in a way, and we shouldn't forget that, right? It's, it's, we shouldn't label people as good or bad. We're all in the same boat uh, trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you this and, and see what you think. And I, I wrote about this a little while ago. Um, a lot of people like to ask, are human beings naturally peaceful or are they naturally violent, right? And then, you know, they say, well, they're naturally peaceful, so we should you know, we should favor this socioeconomic system or they're naturally violent. So we should favor this, you know, and, and they go in those directions. But I, I think that any given human being has the capacity for great goodness and peacefulness. And I think we all have the capacity to be the capacity to be really violent and really aggressive and really uh, monstrous. And I think, I think whether or not we go in one direction or we behave one way or whether we, we go in the other direction, we behave the other way has everything to do with how well we're meeting our own needs. And I think it's physical needs. I think it's spiritual needs, mental needs. If we feel like we're meeting our needs, then I think we're pretty calm and, and peaceful people. And if we feel like we're having a hard time meeting our needs, I think that's when we can get pretty ugly. And I think a lot of times people are just so broken because they've been they've been raised with trauma and whatnot that they don't they don't realize where some of their antisocial behaviors come from right they don't they don't realize they haven't connected those dots because they haven't been through the the therapeutic process to to do you know to to have that realization and so they they're sort of stuck in this place where they're continuing to try to meet their needs but they're using the wrong tools they have bad knowledge and, you know, so they, they just, they just, they just turn out to be really deplorable kind of people. But if we, if we can see them as just, you know, what I just described as what human beings are, are capable of, then I think we can be more compassionate towards, towards what they're going through, even if to us, it seems like they're really evil people. Right. Right. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what humanity is. We have the capacity for, for goodness and we have the capacity for, for evil. But it's not it's not who we are. It's what we're we're capable of. And the difference is 
where are we at when it comes to meeting what we consider to be our needs, right? Like if you could take the most peaceful people and if you take away their oxygen, they're going to start, they're going to start swinging their fists and getting violent at whatever the source is. You know what I mean? Like if you have your, um, they're, they're going to start getting violent in order to get, to get that oxygen flowing again, whatever's cutting it off. Right. Sure, that's kind that's of the a, fight a or flight version. response. Yeah. 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 So let's see, this is, this is where, uh, as a stoic, I'll challenge that notion okay. and I'll say, you're right. Absolutely. If someone is, is cornered, that beast is going to come out within you. It's that fight or flight response because we have that will to live, right? What stoicism will try and teach us, and, and we hope that we can garner the strength for this, um, is that no matter what's happening externally, no matter what uh, um, fear factor is present or anxiety is present around you, nothing external to your own judgments gets inside your brain in the squishy bits and starts pulling levers. There is absolutely nothing that can make you make a decision. Um, I'll use a good example. This came up in, in, in one of the uh, conversations with my friend. He said, okay, imagine this scenario. He said, we both have daughters. Imagine both our daughters have, uh, they're, they're um, diabetic and they need insulin. Okay. And let's imagine this post-apocalyptic scenario where there's one insulin syringe left and they both go into shock. He said, tell me that you and I aren't immediately jump at that and see who can grab it first and, and fist fight each other. Right. And I said, I absolutely agree that that is going to be my instinct. However, I hope I have the strength and courage to be able to look at you and say, let's talk about this though and figure out the most logical uh, course of action. I hope that I would, we would both have the capacity and strength to be able to discuss, okay, who's going to offer the best chance for survival uh, to the tribe, let's say. Can, can we do that? I don't believe so. I think emotions are too strong. But as a stoic, I have to work towards that level of clarity. I have to at least strive towards that. Knowing full well, I can't get there. But I have to try as much as I can, right? I got to try to be like, a, uh, you know, if I can be as, as Vulcan as possible, if you will, right? Think as logically as possible without emotions. Um, we can do it. To be human is to feel emotions. And, and as stoics, we accept this, right? Um, if I if I if I look at the Buddhist approach, emotions are like water for ducks back. You just you don't even consider them, right? As Stoics, we do consider them and we accept them as being part of us because it, that roommate is there. I exist in this body, and this body's brain has emotions, and and I can't shut them off. Uh, I I can ignore it, but what's that going to do? And how long is that going to work for? It's just going to fester up and, and get worse. So it's it's a very interesting topic of. Uh, you know, you say if your if your needs are met, yeah, it's easier to be cool, calm, collective, and virtuous. But that doesn't mean we have to have our needs met to be virtuous. And I guess as a Stoic, I try and push that limit as much as possible through uh, meditation to be able to be virtuous as much as possible with as much external negative stimulus, uh, but yet remain as virtuous as possible. You you, you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And and that's, 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 that's really one of, if not the primary, that's kind of the, one of the, the primary reasons that we we do study philosophy and we study particularly stoic philosophy is to, and I hate the popular misconceptions about stoicism. And of course it's based on, you know, like Vulcans and Spock and he was the stoic and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's just not true. It's, <laughs> except, yeah, except, it's accepting that we have emotions, that we're flawed, like you say, that we have emotions, but also that it's okay to feel the emotions. It's okay to feel them, spend some time with them. Um, but where you want to be careful is in 
the decision making that is going to start at some point. And right. the stoic insight is emotions are important. The two we are, we shouldn't repress them. That's dangerous. We shouldn't ignore them. We should feel them, but we also shouldn't. And I know I'm, I'm shooting all over the place here. <laughs> we shouldn't, <laughs> we shouldn't, uh, allow them to affect our decision making, affect the choices that we make. And you're right. There are incredibly extreme situations like you described with your, with your daughter need, needing something right now. Um, somebody who you, you care about. Um, yeah, it's like, it's, you know, that I'm sure there's situations we can think of that even the most knowledgeable, dedicated stoic would, you know, throw all of that to the wind. <laughs> um, but it, it, it is about, cause that's just such an extreme thing. It's, it's not likely to happen to any of us. So, you know, it, it's a fun mental exercise, but it's, you know, let's let's contrast that and the challenge of of doing the right thing, the virtuous thing, right? The rational thing in those moments that are really extremely rare and probably never going to happen to us in our lives. Let's contrast that with what is likely to happen to us and how much easier it is to to remain level headed. Right? right. I think the key key takeaway here is emotions make for a bad advisor. Yeah. Yeah. I like and, that. And that's kind of what we try to focus on. Emotions make for advisor. a bad advisor. Yeah, emotions make for a bad advisor. Um, I'm gonna write that down. I'll put that in the show notes. Emotions make for bad. <laughs> <laughs> I've been keeping show notes here just as the topics change. Sure. I'm gonna include that for I, I know I go all over the place, but this is such an interesting topic and it, it's relevant to so many things. Um oftentimes I get called back for second and third interviews because, you know, uh we can talk about we can apply this in, in, in so many different ways to so many different uh, uh pertinent topics, you know. Even stuff that's going on today, if we want to talk politics or things in, you know, family life, we've been talking a lot more about family life. You can apply it to work. You can apply it to so many, so many, so many different things. Um, we can even talk about the, the the Vulcans, if you want, and how their philosophy fits with Stoicism, if that interests your your audience. But I'll let you lead the, I'll let you well, lead the conversation. Well, I, um, I found an article a while ago, and this is this is one of the first thing I read when I, when I started looking into Stoicism. It was an article about... It was about Spock and it was about Kirk and it was about McCoy. And it kind of contrasted them all. And Spock was the uber logical, the uber rational, and and McCoy was the uber emotional. And by the end of the article, it it put Kirk right there as that balance between the two and how Kirk is is probably the better example of the Stoic than than Spock would be. And I, I don't know if you've seen that article. I can send it to you. I sort of did a live read of it for one of my episodes on the other podcast, but um, but yeah, I, I'm, I am curious what you have to say about that. Okay. Well, usually I, I haven't heard about that article. Um, I'll, I'll address that in the conclusion, but I, I have been asked a lot about, uh, Spock and the Vulcans because, you know, what's their philosophy is the greater good. Uh, no, the need of the many over the need of the few or something like this. Yeah. And they say, is that, is that stoic? And I say, well, yeah, yes and no. So let me explain. Uh, in the study of uh, most ancient philosophies, there's, there's three fields of study. There is physics, logic, and ethics. Okay, so you study physics, and physics is what we would today call natural sciences. Back then, they called physics. It's everything. So you study physics. Why? Because if you want to make the right decisions, step one is to understand how the world works. If you don't understand how the world works, how can you make good decisions? Example, if I don't know that if you know gravity works and if I let go of this cup, it's going to drop to the ground and shatter... How can make the right decision of putting it down gently as opposed to letting it go, right? Yeah. Uh, second, second school of um, second thing they would learn is logic. Why? 
the logical thought, uh, the Socratic method, okay, the brainchild of Socrates. Um, and, and, and let me backtrack uh, for those that might not know this, but, you know, ancient philosophy would divide into two major categories. There's the pre-Socratics and then the post-Socratics. And Socrates, the reason why we divided into two, it's not because there weren't smart people before Socrates. There were very smart people before Socrates. But Socrates changed the way we approach philosophy. And what he brought was this, the Socratic method, which is accepting that the right answer is often nebulous. And therefore, we can only get to it, not by trying to solve the right answer right off the bat, but by logically and firmly eliminating the wrong answers one by one. Okay, it's a lot easier to find wrong answers and to be sure about it than to try and aim for the right answers right off the bat. That's what the Socratic method means. And that's what logical, logical thought process means. So that's why you study logic. The third category, after you learn physics, how the world works, and logic, how you can make sense of it, is ethics. So as the, the cities grew into what they call polis, city-states, uh, more and more people were living together. Now, instead of having tribes of, you know, 100 people, you have cities of 10,000 people. Now, just out of sheer logistics, you have to make decisions like, we can't get enough grain for everybody. Who's going to starve? Okay, so how do you make that decision? There's no logic behind this. You literally have to choose who's going to suffer and who's not going to suffer. Enter the field of ethics. Now, in the world of ethics, the, uh, every, every ethical ca- uh, um, um, framework falls into one of three categories. Uh, deontology, which is rules. Consequentialism, which is wanting to do the right thing based on uh, consequences. And virtue ethics. The most popular one we live by is deontology. Uh, religion is deontology, right? It, it follow the Ten Commandments, follow all rules, and you are an ethical person. You are a morally good person, they'll say. Uh, when we join a job, you know, we sign a code of ethics. If you follow the code of ethics, you're a morally responsible employee. In theory, this works, but in practice, it doesn't because no one follows the, nobody follows the rules, okay? Everybody, uh, you know, uh, you can't wear a cross around your neck and call yourself a Christian unless you follow everything that the Bible says. You cannot call yourself a Christian. You can't kill in the name of a quote-unquote God and call yourself a Christian because religion doesn't teach to take, right? Religion teaches to help, right? Uh, in the same way, if we if we talk about the code of ethics at, 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 at the office, do we report people swiping pens? No, but you should. That's what the code of ethics says. So uh, the intelligence doesn't work because we tend to apply our own sliding scale. With, okay. These are two extreme examples, but, it, you know, any rules, we're okay with it as long as it doesn't bother us. And then we'll apply our own judgment to it. Consequentialism is then what comes next. And consequentialism is the most popular one is uh, uh, John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism. Basically, if your actions are not going to lead to a benefit of the greater good, don't do it. Okay, and this is where the Vulcans would come in. Vulcans would be consequentialists. They say the need of the many over the need of the few, or the, the you know, you always yeah. think of the greater good. Again, it works in practice. Uh, sorry, excuse me. It works in theory, but it doesn't work in practice because we are emotional beings. If you know, uh, I think back to um, uh, what was that Will Smith movie with the robots? Uh, I Robot. I Robot. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? I think it was it was and, using the I stuff before Apple came out with it. Anyway. Right. And, and why does he hate the robots? Because they made consequentialist choices and they saved him instead of saving the girl from the, from the car, from, from drowning, right? Yeah. Uh, a human being wouldn't do that, right? If you have, if you use the example of, you know, your, your loved ones again, it, it's, it would be very hard for anyone to sacrifice a loved one to save two complete strangers. 
it would be very, very difficult for anyone to do this. So it doesn't work in practice, right? Um, and I'm oversimplifying here right now. Sure. You know, this gets a lot more complicated, obviously. Uh, so enter the third option, which is virtue ethics. Virtue ethics basically puts the onus of the moral decision entirely on the subject, meaning there's no right answer as to uh, whether deontology is the right way to go or consequentialism is the right way to go. You, as, as the subject that has to make a decision, you can't hang your decision-making on a book or uh, uh, emotionless formula and say, well, even if it's the wrong decision, I had nothing to do with this. I was just following orders, right? It's like a soldier saying, oh yeah, I know I took some civilian lives, but it, it was ordered by the by, by my uh, the command. Nur- the Nuremberg defense, yeah. Um, right, ask any soldier that had to take a life. That's not the way it works. You can't just say, well, I was commanded to do so, so I'm okay with it, right? So virtue ethics kind of frees your uh, guilt by putting the onus on you to make the decision. Because if it's entirely on your shoulders, now you, you really have to take stock of everything that's involved and try to make the best decision you can with all the information you have. Granted, 10 years down the line, 10 days down the line, you might look back and be like, man, that was the wrong decision. Yeah, that could happen. But as long as you know, in the moment, you really did do your best and you really did make the best decision with all the information you had at that time, well, then you can't possibly feel guilty, can you? What else could you have done? So stoicism is a form of virtue ethics. The practice of stoicism is virtue ethics in and of itself. And so if I go back to your article with uh, Spock and, and Captain Kirk, I would tend to agree that Captain Kirk is probably closer to what uh, stoicism is because he does take stock of everything instead of leaning just one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember who wrote that. Um, no, but thank you. I think that that whole that whole breakdown of all that stuff was was really was really good. Um, stoicism is does it does it come out of that virtue ethics tradition? I mean, what what did, where did virtue ethics start? Was that Socrates or? Um, so virtue ethics would have been. I, I can't really put a finger on who started okay. it and, and sure. who coined the phrase, um, but I can tell you that. Stoicism itself, and, and not just Stoicism, um, I'm going to say Epicureanism also is, is, is a form of virtue ethics. It's just uh, Epicureanism defines um, the greatest good differently than, than Stoicism. Um, but Epicureanism and Stoicism is very, very, for your, for your uh, listeners who might not know this, uh, in, in ancient Greece, there were four main Hellenic philosophies, which was Cynicism, the original one. Uh, then as uh, Stoicism and Epicureanism came about, and then uh, skepticism came about. Uh, and skepticism, we shouldn't, you know, uh, confuse it with the adverb to be skeptic, and then we shouldn't confuse Stoicism with the adverb to be Stoic. Um, but all of these were very similar uh, in, in a lot of ways, like cynicism, Stoicism and cynicism, huge overlap. There are older cousins, okay, we both believe that we live in the superfluous society, uh, Epicureanism too believes within the superfluous make-believe society, um, but uh, you know the cynics would have protested by selling all their possessions and being uh, homeless and just you know uh, traveling whatever and just talking philosophy. Diogenes, one of my favorite philosophers, he famously lived in a wine barrel with dogs in the streets. Right? Um, Epicureanism fought this by saying, "Look, let's just make communes and 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 take care of ourselves in our commune and live in little." groups and not worry about politics and all this societal crap and, and stress. 
the way Stoics address this were, was by saying, okay, we get it. All of this uh, superfluousness is fake and, and uh, unnecessary. However, this is where we live. And if we find the greatest good as not the pursuit of pleasure, which is what Epicureans, Epicureans do, uh, we see the greatest good as the betterment of humanity because what else is worth doing with my time? You know, what am I going to pursue pleasure? What's going to happen when I die? I don't remember any of this. You know, I don't, it'll all be for naught. But at least if I can help make humanity better, I know humanity is going to go on for a little bit longer, at least. Um, then I'm contributing something. Then my efforts don't die with me. They'll die with our species. And so let me stay and participate in this fake society to, to, to play the game from the inside. Right? I, I akin this to like playing a board game you absolutely hate to help other players along. Okay. And, and so this is how the Stoics kind of address the issue of how do we make a good life in this fictitious world that we live in. And, and so to backtrack to, to uh, what well, went way off on a tangent here, to backtrack to the um, ethics, uh, the ontology, consequentialism, and virtual ethics were discussed and, and, and accepted to varying degrees by all these Hellenic philosophies. But I think Stoicism is the only one that you know, it didn't came about as a form of virtual ethics, but when Zeno, because Zeno of Sidium, who founded the school, he was a cynic. And as a cynic, he was very much a conceptualist. Um, I think he realized, well, no, hold on a second. I, I don't have to shun everything that is. I don't have to shun the deontology that we live in. I don't have to shun, uh, you know, my fellow human beings just because they don't see things the way I do. Let me work with them and live with them and participate with them. So I think organically the philosophy became a form of virtual axia. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm 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 definitely not as not as deep into some of the the historical stuff. Um but I, I think one day I, I will be. I think one day I'll I'll jump into that a bit more than than I have. Let, let why, why don't we do this? We're over an hour, so why don't we end here because because of the season. We've got new years, the end to this very challenging year for many people. And with New Year's comes people, you know, making resolutions to to make changes in their lives. What can Stoicism offer for, I guess, making and keeping those resolutions? All right. I um, first thing I'm going to tell you is, is I just uh, this morning on, on Sunday I posted a new article, and this morning on Reddit, I'm going to recommend to you and anyone who who listens this to just go check out what I posted because. Okay. I think it was a, it's my desktop background I shared with some, some thoughts from Carl Sagan. It's, it's a great way to put 2020 into perspective because one thing, uh, you know, 2020, yes, it's the, it's the devil's year. It's been the worst year ever for a lot of people. Um, but we have to take it with a grain of salt. It's just things that happened. We have not changed. Our lives might have changed. Our realities might have changed but we still have the exact same capacity for decision-making as we did at the beginning of the year. And we're still going to have that same capacity for decision-making uh, next year. And so I start 2021 uh, first off shed any negativity from 2020 in that uh, nothing happened to you. Okay. Things just happened. There was no universal um, conspiracy to, to screw us over or screw your life over. Uh, just it's in the past. It's done. So let's move forward and do some good. And how can we do good? Find out what it is that brings you purpose. Uh, I, my first book, there, you know, I talk, I, the second half, I spend the entirety of the second half helping the reader identify their purpose, their quote unquote spiritual necessity, because it's unique to everyone. We have different realities. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different walks of life. 
we there's no one answer to what the purpose of life is. Um, we were told what it might be uh, by parents, churches, schools, television, society, whatever. Um, you know, one thing I learned 10 years ago is what I was told was not true. So what I would recommend to everyone is take a moment and ask yourself, are you living the life that you want to live? Are you doing what you think is important? And when I say you, I mean, have you consciously and conscientiously thought about what it is you want to accomplish in this life that you have and then work towards it? Wow, that's uh, that's beautiful. All right. Well, we're going to end on that. Thanks so much for um, you know agreeing to come on and chat with me. I, I really enjoyed this. I think this was fantastic. This was great. Thank you for having me. If you ever want to do it again, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think so. I, I probably should check in with you from time to time, just to just to just for you know, um, you know, I keep my eye on the, the stoic world, of course, because I, I like to to read new things about it and talk about it on on my other podcast. But um, actually, talking to somebody like this who you know is is much further along than I am is, has been helpful. So. And for your listeners, if anyone's interested, uh, stoicismforlife.com. You have access to all my articles for free. You have access to all the podcasts for free. Um, you have links to my books, to my social media accounts. I love chatting with people. Ask me questions. Um, I just want people to start asking themselves the right questions. Uh, stoicismforabetterlife.com. And uh, let's get in touch. All right. Fantastic. I'll link to all of that. All right. Thanks again, Anderson. All right. Look forward to hearing from you. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.